In Temple Emmanuel's weekly Shabbat sermons, Rabbis Wes, Michelle, and Eliza share reflections, wisdom, and teaching to enrich your mind and soul. You can find the video archives and podcast versions on templeemmanuel.com. Shabbat Shalom. We are playing musical chairs this morning, and I won. Um, <laughs> it's so wonderful to be sitting here and sharing this beautiful morning with you. Um, today we're going to be looking at the story of the three women of the Purim story. Now, this came up for me um, in part based on some of the conversations that have been happening uh, at home. Every day I'm reading the paper about the war in Ukraine, and every day I'm like, this has to stop. We have to do more. We have to stand up. The American government has to do more. And every day, Solomon says to me, but if the American government does more, it could create World War III. It could create nuclear threats to more innocent people. It could be even more damaging. We have this ongoing back and forth and back and forth. And so looking at the Purim story, the Purim story is also a story of impending destruction. Here it's not war that's already started, but it's certainly a tyrannical leader who's already taken over 127 provinces. Uh, it's a story of a leader who leads with drunkenness and debauchery and who willy-nilly is willing to destroy part of his community just because, because someone asked. So we'll look at three women in his life, three women and how they face that destruction uh, and see if their responses have something to teach us. So we'll start together with the blessing for the Torah. Vashti shall never enter the presence of the king Ahasuerus. 
And let your majesty bestow her royal state upon another who is more worthy than she. Great. Thank you so much. So the king agrees. It's a great idea. Lest any woman think that she can stand up to any man, all men should rule without question. So I want to just ask everyone uh, first to go back into what's going on for Vashti. What's going through Vashti's mind when she gets this request through all these advisors? What is she thinking? Well, can I just back up a second? Yes. Um, I would like to ask you, the way you framed it in the teaser was you asserted two things that I'm sure there's drash for, there's a midrash, but at least I talked for one of them. One is that Ahasuerus summons her to be nude, okay? Which it doesn't say. It says that he, he had her to bring Queen Vashti before the king wearing the royal diadem to display her beauty to the people and the officials. So she was a beautiful woman, but nowhere does it say nude. Um, there is a, a midrash that you do cite later on in your very generous package. When the king says, bring a royal crown, uh, he means only a royal crown. So that's where the nude thing comes from. And then the second thing that you asserted in your, in your framing in the teaser was that she's executed, that she dies. Like she doesn't come and she's dead. And it doesn't say that. The, the text says that she shall never enter the presence of the king again, so that she's going to be for the, the shot seems to be that she's formerly the queen, that she's disregarded. Um, and my question to you is why, uh, and it's International Women's Month, um, and my question to you, and, and you're, you were positing these as stories that could tell us something about the human condition and the human condition for women today. And my question was to ask you, why go to the more extreme of you want to nude when the regular is pretty bad enough? And, and why go to the extreme of you want her dead when the regular who wants her disregarded is enough? What inspired you to frame it that way? So I think the nudity feel, feels to me shot. Like, why would you say what she's wearing if you're not, if, if like, <laughs> there's no reason otherwise? Why, why would he ask her to come in a royal crown? Like, She's royalty. She can wear that whenever she wants, A. B, to never appear before the king. Like, how do you infer that other than death? So those two things to me, I also just think she's a pig, and that reinforces right. that story. Yeah, although certainly if you have seen or heard the musical Six, you know that banishment is likewise a pretty terrible punishment for a woman of that time. Yeah, but just one last thing, and then I'll stop. It feels to me like, like, what's the offense of this husband to this wife? It was to treat her, to not respect her, to not see her, to not lovingly communicate with her. Like, you would think that if this were a, a healthy marriage, he would say to her, oh, hon, by the way, I have a big event at the palace tonight. Could you come by about 6 o'clock? There's some people I'd like you to meet. Or, let's say he forgot to do it in the morning when they got up, he sends her a text, whatever that would look like in the ancient world. Hey, hon, I forgot to tell you. I'm so sorry. I had a lot on my mind, but in three hours, I'm going to have, like, a delegation. Could you come by, right? And instead, he doesn't talk to her at all. He gets these seven eunuchs. And then the Hebrew is lahavi at vashti hamalcha, the same amount, to bring vashti. So she's an object. She's a piece of meat. She's an object. And it, it feels like the shot feels much scarier to me for women. Then, then the right, like that's very scary. And my question to you is, what's the resonance of that as well? Why does that feel more scary? Just because it's more common that the people in a in a, in a relationship don't see each other. Um, it's like I it versus I thou. 
um, and I, you know, I'm gonna just get seven eunuchs to communicate with you to bring you like your like your package, the yeah. heavy advice. Yeah. To me, to me, and we will talk more about this later. But to me, Haman has a much healthier relationship with his <laughs> wife. <laughs> We're on the same page. <laughs> right, exactly. Yeah. Than a husband. And yeah. and to be honest with you, I mean, I'm sorry. I know it's Women's Day, and I don't like any of the men here. But I feel really sorry. The people who I feel really sorry here are the eunuchs. Poor people. Oh my gosh, can you imagine going through that? Poor people. Uh, eunuchs. <laughs> Those are the martyrs of this story. Uh, uh, I'm with you. <laughs> All right, so, so I'm just going to add a challenge to the only, and it's, it's the rabbinic take that, you know, only the, the royal diadem, only the Keter Hamafut. And because in this generous package, <laughs> I couldn't think there were so many tags. <laughs> when we look, although it's it's not paginated, so nope. I can't. Nope. <laughs> Still learning. It does say the Sam Keter Malchut Rasha when speaking of Esther. That Esther put the royal. It's the exact same language used for Vashti, and Esther doesn't. When Esther does it. The rabbis get so excited. They love that Esther does it. Mm-hmm. And when Vashti does it, they literally turn her into a demon. I mean, they give her a tail. Yes. You know, they, they, Vashti is clearly the villain of the story. And, you know, one of the big reasons is this one I can say on page three. <laughs> it says, you know, and that way all wives will treat their husbands with respect. And there, there is this sense that, you know, Vashti saying no to the king is so transgressive this idea that a woman could have an opinion to herself and an idea of what she wanted and not just what he wanted. And I agree with you, Wes, that that in and of itself is problem enough right. and challenge enough. And I just want to note that it's so interesting to me that the rabbis are just so savage with her because the word that's used when she refuses, the tema'en, is actually exactly the word that is used for Yosef. Yosef exactly. For Yosef, when Joseph Hatzadik, and he right. gets called Yosef Hatzadik because he refuses immorality, and she gets just absolutely Slammed. eviscerated. So can you just say a word about this? I, mean, I don't know, this feels maybe like it's 1970s Judaism, but I'll move it to 2022. How do you as women rabbis engage a patriarchal Talmudic tradition where they're just horrible. Like, we like to say that the foundation of Judaism is the Talmud, but then you read the Talmud on Vashti, and they're horrible. What do you do with patriarchal pigs? No, 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 just answer that no, question. No, 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 no. I want to clarify something. Yeah. She is leading the class today. Okay, okay, okay. So she is doing the questions. <laughs> you be the mode to that chair. Okay, okay. You know, for two years I've been having neck problems sitting in that chair looking like this all the time. It's impossible. You been demoted. Okay. She does the questions okay, today. Okay, okay, Alisa, okay. please, go ahead. It feels like, first of all, I'm really grateful that you pointed that out because that feels like, I, you know, one of the things I wanted to talk about was that there is this trope, right? The first woman who gets this treatment is Lilith, and her first sin is she says no to Adam, and she gets expelled from the garden. She gets demonized. Like, even in Talmud, it says, don't fall asleep in a room alone lest Lilith come and get you, and she's just this demon. Women who say no become demons, and that's certainly something that we see in our, our world today because any time, you know, there, in the restaurant industry, there were a lot of cases where 
male managers could say, like, what are you doing? Go back and do the dishes. And people would do it. And if a woman manager said, like, what are you doing? Go back and do the dishes. They'd be like, oh, geez, what a four-letter, you know, five-letter word, blah, 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 blah. How dare she? Why is she saying that? And so, um, well, yeah, I, I also think that there's a piece here that runs. You've got to look deeper because you, you asked the question about how do I think about rabbinic literature? How do we think about rabbinic literature given this really right. misogynistic trope that's running through here? In some ways, the very story of the Megillah itself is redemptive because ultimately, although Esther is the person, you know, who, who says yes to Uncle Mordecai, she's certainly not saying yes to the plan of Ahasuerus, her, her husband, which has been egged on by Haman. And therefore, in some way, when Esther gets the opportunity to say, no, I'm not going to stand for this, I'm going to be an actor in history, she, she becomes kind of the Eve to the Lilith. She becomes the, the sort of moving forward of the story. We start the story in not a great place with women. And over time, I think we, we do get a little bit better and better. I mean, the two of us are sitting here today. <laughs> you go from all the way back then to all the way today. Yes. I, yes. I want to go back to, uh, Wes, your initial analysis of the relationship. So, I mean, if you think about what what the, uh, the role of a queen was, you know, back in like 2,000 years ago, whatever it was, it, it's not, it, it's, it, she was part of a harem. Fashi was part of a harem. And so there's no, it's, it's all about sex and not about relationships. So I think there's no, there's, there'd be no such thing as a loving relationship in terms of the king and his, and his harem of, of women. So that's, that's one thing I want to say. I also want to, I want to bring up another little, um, uh, little story. When uh, my very first quorum here in the Gan Chapel, uh, with the chapel, uh, I'm reading. Huh? Yes, it was. Uh, it, it was, was still uh, in the old building. It was at the time of. It was at the time of Achashverosh. Yes, I was. There another So, I start to chant the Megillah, and I get I get to the word Vashti, and I hear a little in the background. And I turn around, and there's one of our members who's had a dog. She brought the dog to, to the to the Megillah reading. Now the dog's name was Vashti. The dog's name was Vashti. And why did you name her Vashti? He says because I called her and she never comes. Okay. <laughs> true story. Wow. It's a true story. Okay. So I want to I want to call this back and I want to pull back and look at if Vashti is responding to. And here's my premise: Achashverosh is a pig. He's a jerk. He you know gives these parties. His one command is that people just drink as much as possible. He has no respect for women. If her strategy is to oppose him, is it a good strategy? What is, what is her strategy? Is it worthwhile? Is it something we should be thinking about today? Are there ever times for the strategy of Vashti, which is a just hard no? Well, it's, it's interesting what you were saying, Michelle, comparing, comparing the trajectory of, of uh, Adassah and uh, Esther. And... Uh, one of the things that the story begins, correct me if I'm wrong, but the story with her begins that the, the king brings a new set of women to spend the night with him, and Esther is one of them. So in a way, she's following men's rules and all, the, you know, seeing women as, as meat and all that stuff. So it's, it's fascinating, but then she ends up being who she is. Um, and I think one of the core and critical differences here is that we don't have a sense of larger purpose for Vashti. 
I, I mean, today as a woman, I would say, you know, you go girl, right? And, and I'm all for standing up for individual right to be able to articulate your own mind and do what you believe is the right thing, particularly in a space of debauchery, right? To be able to say no is one of the critical things that we believe today. But it is, it is not necessarily for a global and larger purpose, whereas I think when, when you're thinking about Esther, right, Esther's actions are taken, even in, in a sense she's not ready, she, she doesn't know how, she, she's, she's not exactly enthusiastic about doing it, but it's for a larger purpose. And it feels to me like when we act for a larger purpose, that can give us more strength, more more meaning, and, and I think more effectiveness. Which is so interesting to me because in the text itself, actually, it, uh, it gives Vashti a larger purpose, that her defiance actually gives women around the country, around the, the empire, the space to say no. And so in, in essence, like, the, the text gives her a larger purpose. Or, or the text is saying, oh, no, the husband, you know, the wives will look at this and they'll get out of hand. Right? It's not that she's acting. It doesn't say, you know, Vashti has developed a feminist campaign. And she's saying, come with me, sisters. Say no to your husbands. Right? It's not that. She's acting, and they're worried that somebody's going to see what she does and then act in that way, which I think is different from what Esther does, which is she's intentionally acting on behalf of, of, the, of her people. So I'm not sure this text knows about feminist campaigns. <laughs> Once I saw you wanted to jump in. So how does it feel to be in that chair? Yeah, it feels, it feels awesome. Uh, you know, I, you asked the question about strategy, Alicia. I think one of the deeper resonances of the Vashti piece for today is, is about st structural inequality and institutional forces that transcend any individual's agency. I mean, if you're born... And, you know, so much of our life is, is zip code. It's when we're born and where we're born and the circumstances in which we're born. And, and you could be a person of incredible talent and strength and resource, you know, resolve and all this good stuff. But if you're born in a really challenged zip code, really bad time, really bad place. I mean, there's, you, you began by talking about the, the war in Ukraine and the conversations you and Solomon have. Think about these kids. I was watching the news this morning who are getting hypothermia. They just have the misfortune of being born in Ukraine now, and they're just on the road of two and a half million refugees. And I, to me, the Vashti question is what happens when it's actually not even about strategy? It's about, it's about structural inequality or institutional inequality or factors that just exceed and dwarf, dwarf, dwarf the importance of your humanity. The kids walking around in, in, in Ukraine today, they could be the fastest and the strongest. They could jump high. They could be brilliant. They could be Einstein. They could be Mozart. They could be Shakespeare. But they're just refugees who are freezing and starving. And, and so their agency is, is, is superseded by the weight of their circumstance. And I feel like that's kind of in Vashti and the whole biblical world. Uh, what happens when strategy is irrelevant? Because no matter how strong the strategy is, the circumstances are stronger. Beautiful. So we're going to keep... Next time I will vote for you to be back in Ukraine. <laughs> 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 right, we're going to keep going with Zara. It's, it's in the middle of the packet. I just hope the rain is not watching. What page? There's no page. Still learning about 
about this chair. There's a lot that goes on in this chair. It's in the middle of the packet. Esther chapter 5. Just, just, just go with me. Here we go. So, um, Sarah appears twice in the Megillah, both times. She appears after a decision has already been made, after action has already been initiated, and she always appears with a gaggle of other people. Um, so there are two sort of situations. The first day, um, he's, Haman is just furious that uh, Mordecai won't bow down to him. He's plotting his destruction. Um, and he goes home. Uh, we're chapter 5, verse 10. And he sent for his friends and his wife, Zeresh, and Haman told them about his great wealth and his many sons and all about how the king had promoted him and advanced him above the officials and the king's courtiers. What is more, said Haman, Queen Esther gave a feast, and besides the king, she did not have anyone but me. And tomorrow, too, I am invited by her along with the king. Yet all this means nothing to me every time I see that Jew Mordecai sitting at the palace gate. Then his wife, Zeresh, and all his friends said to him, Let a stake be put up, fifty cubits high, and in the morning ask the king to have Mordecai impaled on it. Then you can go gaily with the king to the feast. The proposal pleased Haman, and he had the stake put up. Now, fast forward. Can I just take issue with your translation for one minute? Safari is translation. But yeah, yes, so Safari has a very, I mean, I'd be really interested for those of you who are mavens on translations here, but, you know, the Yitzlu. Namely, none of us. The Yitzlu, <laughs> right, uh, it feels like you're hanging, and it's an eight gavoha, and that sounds gallows, yes. uh, not impalement, so maybe there's torture device that I'm, I'm not entirely cognizant uh, yeah. on. If, for our purpose of this class, like, she just, like, let him be killed. Like, yeah, let him be killed. It's, it's, I, don't, I think for her, totally hear you, and um, we're going to keep going. <laughs> <laughs> not going to get derailed. So then... But can I just actually... No, uh, no. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I just want to get these two things in, and then you guys can all talk about it. Okay. So the next thing that happens after... <laughs> After the king wakes up in the middle of the night, he realizes Mordecai saved his life. He says to Haman, what should I do to honor this great man? Um, and then uh, um, Haman gives him this whole thing, and Akhenshar says, great, do that for Mordecai. Haman is totally upset. He comes home. Uh, we're uh, in a chapter, chapter 6, verse 13. Uh, there Haman told his wife Zeresh and all his friends everything that had befallen him. His advisors and his wife Zeresh said to him, if Mordecai, before whom you have begun to fall, is a Jewish shock, you will not overcome him. You will fall before him to your ruin. Okay. How do we understand Zeresh in these moments? Feel free. Okay. So, 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 can, I, can I say something you, quick? You can be hung and impaled. We'll agree. So, okay. Yeah. <laughs> uh, more, more of what I said before, comparing, um, comparing Vashti with, with Zeresh. To me, this, this speaks to me like a much more current, um, you know, marriage relationship where normally I come home and I said, Lorena, guess what? Uh, something happened to me. I don't know what to do. I mean, tell me. And she was go. No. <laughs> she's, she's very sweet. But, you know, this is more, much more seriously talking. This is a much more healthier relationship when you are confident with your wife and you come and you tell about your issues and in a way you're asking her to, to give her your opinion and pointing you in a certain direction. So I like this a lot. And I actually, now that I read this, I would have been 
much scarier of her than Jeremy. Well, so that's what I want to pick up, because in your teaser, you laid out that Zeresh goes along to get along. And, like, the pshat, the, the actual plain meaning of the text here, Haman comes home, and he's, oi, darling, I don't know what to do. My heart is honey, so heavy. Honey, honey, honey <laughs> I don't know what to do. My heart is so heavy. I'm, I'm, I'm hurting my, you know, I'm just so upset. And she says, she says, you know, build the gallows or she. the impalement. Whole group okay, of wait, wait, but the, the first time she comes up, it's her first, and then the group of people behind her. She actually is the instigator. She is Haman 1.0, and he goes out in the world and acts as Haman 2.0, carrying out actually the decisions that she, as the woman behind him, is having him go do. This is something I haven't understood because before that even happens, Haman is the one who sets out. He's already issued the law, the decree to destroy the Jews. Like, it's not like that isn't already in process. So part of my read of her is that she's responding to her husband. Her husband has issued this law. So, okay, yeah. So, um, Michelle, actually, you had asked earlier about the Hebrew and is my age, et cetera. No, no, no. I think it's a really important question because actually I just wanted to say this. And this is a lot of the meaning of, of Megillah Esther is hidden in this fact, okay? It's the difference between hanging and impaling, and sorry about this, people, but I have to go here. Hanging is, you know what hanging is. Impaling is different, and impaling is, and if you Google impaling, it's taking um, a stake and sticking it through a person's genitals till it comes out of their mouth. So it's extremely graphic, it's extreme cruelty. It's extreme cruelty, and Torah, um, the, the Torah basically says uh, people have to be buried, uh, even your biggest enemy has to be buried on the day of, and, and impaling is just considered extreme torture and beyond horribleness, right? And it turns out Zeresh suggests not just that, that Mordechai be killed, but that he be impaled. So Zeresh is, is I agree with you, Michelle, not going along to getting along. She's instigating not just cruelty, she's instigating exceptional cruelty. And as you know, in, in the Gilad Esther, everything is inverted, it's a love hafuf. And in the end, Zeresh's idea that will take Mordechai and impale him, right? The Jews in chapter 9 do that to Haman and his kids. After they're hanged, then they're impaled. Right. Um, and so and you and have uh, extreme cruelty run amok. So it, I, I, to me, in terms of the wife-husband dynamic, what happens when a spouse... Um, brings out the worst in their spouse. Right, and exactly. And I agree with you. And uh, sorry, but you get the message now that being in that church means you're being attacked. <laughs> you know, the person who sits there gets attacked. No, but, but in the way in the way you're sorry. In the in the teaser the way you're portraying her is like in a way like she knows that her husband is evil and she's afraid of him, and she needs to go along with him. And to me, you know, there is a reason she perhaps married him, because in a way, he was exactly like him, or even worse. So to me, it's, it's, you know, it's not a lot of the time she says, I woke up and, oh, who is this monster that is married with me? Actually, no. She is actually fulfilling, fulfilling something that is inside her as well. I think there's also... When we're 
but we don't know the kinds of compromises that she made in her marriage in order to stay with her for as long, right? And so we're reading her only in this moment, and we're not seeing the story of their whole marriage. I think it's entirely possible that, like, she operates the way that everybody else in this time operates, and this is how she's found a way to be useful to him and kind of found a way to be seen by him. And and it's not it's not pretty, but I I, I think it's important well, order of I mean, how things. What happen. were you hoping for for us to bring out in terms of a, a model of response from her? So she doesn't she doesn't really. I mean, you all see her much more actively than I see her in terms of that she is an instigator, that she is actually um, making things happen, um, and so. That's a, sort of a different response. That's but, yeah, I, well, I wanted to just draw on one other thing in the source that you, that you gave. Her last, Zeresh's last words are now that Haman realizes that Mordechai has the upper hand, she says, and this is her last verse, if Mordechai, before whom you have begun to fall, is of Jewish stuff, you will not overcome him. You will fall before him to your ruin. The end. Okay? Now, I, the, to me, it's also very so. Like no, con- no. Heart, we, I guess we shouldn't be surprised. No heart, no consolation, no compassion, no love, no honey. Um, but instead, she's like extreme cruelty, and now she's kind of extreme sober sobriety. You're gonna, your demise is coming. Um, and I'm wondering. I guess I. What What do we learn from that kind of? Uh, what is like? What is the what's the Zerish? I, I presume it's to avoid something, but what is it that what is, or, or is it to do something? Like what does Zerish teach women on International Women's Month? Jen, can you talk a little bit because you seem so shy, and as a moderator of the room, I think. <laughs> 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 yeah. Okay, I want to listen. I you know, maybe maybe she's suggesting uh, being preemptive. Like in other words, if if you don't do what I just suggested, which is to you know hang and then impale, um, then uh, and and so allow, if you don't if you allow Mordechai, aka all of the Jews, uh, to continue to survive, then um, then you then you will have this terrible downfall. Maybe that's what she's suggesting. I mean, you know, you can read the Megillah. Obviously, it's. Um, there's so many layers to it. It's you know, it's it's a farce. It's a it's a it's, it's mythological. But um, but there's also you know, but it's all, there's also an embedded story right. about about the about the rise, um, about the, the decline of one sort of thing and the rise of another. Um, and in terms, of, in terms of what we're talking about, you know, the general theme about about um, about uh, about the women, and you mentioned uh, you know, Hafuch, the inversion, right? So we have Vashti, um, and then. Um, who uh, who is demonized, and then the inversion where where uh, the whole story is real. the whole story is, is is really about women. The whole story is about women. The whole focus of it. It's you know first it's Vashti and then it's then it's Esther and then it's Zeresh and then and, and Esther again. Um, so it's all it's all about inversions where women start off completely at the lowest possible point, uh, and then and then become in, in a sense uh, the her- heroines or the heroes of, of the story. Yeah, I, I actually, thank you, Dan, um, but I actually want to go back, Wes, to what you said about the people who bring out the best in us and the people who bring out the worst in us. And I, I think, you know, as we're looking at the world, I think it's really important that Zeresh always appears with the rabble, right, with all those friends, because Zeresh is that kind of, that worst voice inside of us that's often kind of, well, everybody is saying this, Right. right. 
And it's very easy to, to look at the world that way and, and fall under that sway. And it's really hard to step back and say, wait, well, who am, who am I here? What do I really think is the right thing? With that, let's keep going faster. Uh, it's on a page. Uh, <laughs> learning so many things today, let me tell you. <laughs> There's a chapter, too. <laughs> it's on page, uh, Esther chapter 4, uh, but it's really not on the page where their title is. It's on the next page. Um, <laughs> so, uh, when Mordecai uh, finds out about Haman's decree to, to destroy the Jewish population, He's very upset, and he puts on sackcloth, and he goes around the city just crying out. Um, and Esther's first move is very interesting. Her first move is to send him just different clothes, to change your clothes, get out of those sackcloths. Like, you can't be seen around here wearing your sackcloth. He refuses. Instead, he sends back a copy of the, the law, the decree of the destruction of the Jews, and a request that she would go and beg King Ahasuerus. And so we'll pick up um, on a page. Um, <laughs> where it says, I'll read it because I'm here. Um, <laughs> verse 9. Uh, when Hatak came and delivered Mordecai's message to Esther, Esther told Hatak to take back to Mordecai the following reply. All the king's courtiers and the people of the king's provinces know that if any person, man or woman, enters the king's presence in the inner court without having been summoned, there is but one law for him, that he should be put to death. Only if the king extends the golden scepter to him may he live. Now, I have not been summoned to visit the king for the last 30 days. When Mordecai was told what Esther had said, Mordecai had this message delivered to Esther. Do not imagine that you, of all the Jews, will escape with your life by being in the king's palace. On the contrary, if you keep silent in this crisis, relief and deliverance will come to the Jews from another quarter, while you and your father's house will perish. And who knows, perhaps you have attained royal position for just such a crisis. Then Esther sent back this answer to Mordecai. Go, assemble all the Jews who live in Shushan and fast in my behalf. Do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. I and my maidens will observe the same fast. Then I shall go to the king, though it is contrary to the law. And if I am to perish, I, am, I shall perish. So they all fast. Uh, she goes to the king. He inclines his scepter. And uh, she asks for the favor of getting to throw a party. She goes to a party. It's a great party. And then she asks for the favor of another party. And then at that second party... She does the big reveal, and uh, the king is very, very generous. Um, he's like, up to half the kingdom, I'll give it to you. And she says to him, if your majesty, I'm in Esther chapter 7, if your majesty will do me the favor, and if it pleases your majesty, let my life be granted me as my wish and my people as my request. For we have been sold, my people and I, to be destroyed, massacred, and exterminated. Had we only been sold as bondmen and bondwomen, I would have kept silent, for the adversary is not worthy of the king's trouble. Thereupon, King Ahasuerus demanded of Queen Esther, of Queen Esther, who is he and where is he who dared to do this? The adversary and the enemy, replied Esther, is this evil Haman. And Haman cringed in terror before the king and queen. So, so the first thing that comes up yes. to my mind is your, the, the way you started today, describing uh, Ahasuerus, saying that he was a drunk, that he was a, a dictatorship and all that stuff. And then that treated women very badly, but he's completely different from this guy in the way he reacts to her. So, is it possible that all human beings, it's not something new, but we all have like multitudes of personalities, 
I mean, I think also Ahasuerus uh, goes through his own process of realization. My, my favorite moment in the Megillah, well, I shouldn't say my favorite, but one of my favorite moments is the beginning of chapter 2 when he realizes what he had done to Vashti. Mm -hmm. And he's just filled with remorse and regret, and you can hear it in the music. And when Esther comes along, we don't get any reason for why they fall in love, or, or at least he loves her. Um, she doesn't wear any makeup. She doesn't do any of the things that the other women do. But he just loves her above and beyond everyone else. Um, and and it's an interesting. I have this question of whether he um, he loves her extra, he sees her extra because of his mistakes with Vashti. Yeah. So you frame this class of the three women, um, Vashti, Zeresh, and Esther, um, in the this week and month of International Women's Month. We're thinking about about that um, and what what light they shed and. And so Vashti is problematic because her strategy is not as strong as Esther's. And Zeresh is problematic because she seems to be pure evil. Uh, she's the one that comes up with the idea of impaling Aegon. Esther is the woman in the story that you feel very rich for because Esther means hidden. And one of the sources that you brought in your rich collection mentions a source that, that her, she's beautiful but hidden. She's Hadassah, she's beautiful, but she's hidden. And I wanted to ask, I wanted to talk about what does it say about, like, do women have to hide certain parts? Like, she hides her Judaism, her Jewish identity. That's the big, the big hidden fact. But is this making a point about women having to hide essential parts of their personality to make it in a man's world? Is that one of the themes? She has to hide her Jewish identity, but since we're bringing it in the month of International Women's Month, what light does that shed on the issue and the theme of hiddenness? The other thing, yeah, the thing I want to respond to that quickly is I'm, I'm thinking about what, what other things are hidden. Like Esther is so, has so much EQ. I mean, she really understands Achazerosh, that he's really, he's really not all that smart, that he's very easily manipulated, and that she throws a party because she knows he loves parties, throws another party because she knows he loves parties, and then uses that, uses that leverage uh, of understanding how much he likes to drink and, and also how easily flying off the handle he is so that he uses that leverage, that, that, that EQ and also that really high intelligence to be able to, uh, to, uh, to um, move the story forward and be able to, you know, to rescue the Jewish people uh, and herself specifically. You can see it in another reason. That's a very good perspective, but Alisa perspective is more like falling in love with each other. Mm -hmm. In a way, you can also see as Esther not trying to hurt her husband by you know how to manage and being afraid that she's going to like me even if I told him that I'm Jewish. Mm -hmm. You know, so it can be seen as both things. From the midrash, also in the Talmud talks about Hadassah that she was actually green, and I love this story that she, she her essential nature was such that she couldn't see her whole experience of life was hiding, um, and I don't know. You know, it's it's an interesting. Loves her. I think he definitely loves her. It's hard to know how she. If she seems too smart to love him, and right, like, she doesn't. Also, like, if it, it, really what happens in life, <laughs> women are smarter than men. Where there's such a power imbalance, where there's such a power imbalance, how could there be love? I mean, don't yeah. you need to have co-equal power for love? And, if, right. And I was also going to pick up on on the love thing because it feels to me like when he hears from Esther that she and her people are going to be destroyed and killed, you know, right? He's, he's angry about that. He's upset about that. 
But when he sees Haman lying on the couch, he says, do you mean to ravish my wife here? It feels like it's a lot about sex. It's a lot about lust. It's a lot about power. It's a lot about, you know, that's my wife. And, and I, I'm not sure how much of it is about, you know, I'm so deeply devoted to Esther. Right. And in, and in that way, it feels like also his response has, you know, she sets up a situation in which Haman is, is behaving inappropriately towards her. And that actually grants her freedom, not her, you know, it, maybe that's her strategy is to actually set him up to be in an unfortunate situation, mm-hmm. knowing that he's going to be drunk, knowing that he's going to be out of control. Um, but it's very, it's very interesting. And even I find so interesting about Esther, her first move when she finds out about this decree is like, Mordecai, put on different clothes. Like, stop mourning. Stop being publicly upset about this. What are you doing? Um, and the text gives Mordecai this, like, you know, empowering line. Like, you're, you've got to be the first to rise up. You've got this. You, you're going to save us all. But it's, it's so not Could we speak to um, the word that you used at the beginning, a strategy? To what extent is hiddenness a strategy um, and a wise strategy for Esther and for women today? I think it's potentially a really wise strategy. I think that, um, you know, in part, Esther is without the truth, give people what they want until they want what you want to give. That, that she... She's like a chameleon. She makes herself. And, and I think as we're trying to figure out how to solve the challenges of our world, um, there's a lot of, of hidden uh, motives, a lot of hidden strategy that's being employed. I, I don't know that it's so effective right now, but well, uh, I, mean, I, I can speak. I speak with a little bit for, for you know, what, what my wife talks about and what corporate world in terms of, you know, politics and stuff like that. You said it a little bit before. When when a CEO of a company screams, everybody says a man will say, "What a leader!" And he's great. And when a woman does the same, performance and she should win, you know. And she's out of control. She cannot lead this. So it's it's completely unfair. And in a way, answering your question, what is the only way that she can be successful here by hiding the emotion? She's under control and stuff like that. So it's completely unfair, and uh, it shouldn't be like that. But yeah. it's what happens these days. But but her strength ultimately is not in her hiddenness. Her strength is when she's able to give up her strategy of hiddenness and realizing that she has to reveal herself in order to be able to accomplish any sort of tikkun olam, any sort of positive movement in her world. And she realizes that actually maybe... What Mordecai says to her is is true. She she does find herself in a place where she has a voice. She may not know how to use it, but she has to figure that out. And I think that's not just important for women. I think that's important for all of us as humans. That there are times where we we want to hide. We don't want to step up to the moment. And. And it's in—it's actually in finding that that voice, that power, that that opportunity, and that place where you can act. Can you get a read on Esther's attitude towards her own deviousness? Is she enthusiastic about it? Is she ambivalent about it? Is it kind of imposed upon her, like, oh, okay, I got to do this, I guess, you know, or or is she is she like, wow, I get to I get to take my people? What what does she think about the 
Jewish people. What's that? I'm not sure that that's the, even the, I mean, I know this is a Jewish text, but, yeah. but I'm not even sure that that's the most important point about the Megillah. I think that, in a sense, her kind of, we could look at it as a story of, you know, ah, oh, I have finally returned. I am a balat tshuva, right? Yeah. I like totally with my people now, right? And, and that's beautiful and lovely and I think an important read. But it, within the context that you set up here today, Elisa, I think that the more sort of universal message speaks to us as Jews, not about how she feels about her Judaism, but about how we feel about our Judaism leading us to step up, to speak out, to act up. And she's the example of that. And when we find ourselves not knowing what to do, to continue to ask ourselves the question, maybe I'm brought to this moment. Right. But I, I can I just make a case why her inner voice matters. Because if she's ambivalent about her Jewish identity, you know, Aliza, you just mentioned twice her almost embarrassment that mortified her. My midgenic uncle, or like my, my midgenic uncle's a Jew, you kind of embarrass me. And if she has that kind of feeling, um, and yet she does what she does, I think that's in a way a more powerful statement. That somebody who is kind of ambivalent rises to the moment and saves her people. Uh, that just feels to me like a different, in other words, like it's one thing when a rabbi does something Jewish because they're a rabbi, you're expected to be Jewish. Um, but if you're, let's say you come with, you're, you're much more secular, you're much more disconnected, you're right, and, and but something moves you, that, that feels like a more powerful and acceptable message, and it feels like that's what's going on with I was going to say also that you, know, you notice that when, when Esther is actually um, uh, begging the king to save, she's not saying save the Jews, my people, the Jews. She says, my people. She has to actually specify, whereas Zeresh is very clear to specify the Jews. Um, so maybe there, I, I don't know if it's an, an ambivalence or the fact that she's using that um, the sense of, you know, I'm going to get killed, me and my people, but it's me that's going to get killed without, without actually referencing the, the greater, the greater um, uh, um, community. Yeah, and it goes back to what you said earlier before, the fact that you were born in a certain zip code, you know, defines in a way who you are. So there are so many times in what I experienced in my life that I had to hide the fact that I was a Jew in order to survive in a way. And... Uh, that doesn't make me less of a Jew, actually, because I wouldn't carry it proudly uh, in the outside world. It's just a circumstance that, that it surrounded me. One thing I want to say before we end is congratulations on this class. <laughs> you selected very thought-provoking and excellent, excellent leadership, and he's going to get back to that chair next week. <laughs> uh, I'm the tall, I'm the mass pike, so the Zelser stays here in the middle while you go from one chair to the other, but pull it away. Thank you. Thank you. I, I also just want to say with the with this whole text, you know, I think Mordechai also has a complicated Jewish identity. He marries off his niece to a non-Jew. Like, he puts her in a situation where she is exposed and endangered, and even when we think we have clear intentions and clarity of purpose, we often get confounded. And so as we're looking at these stories of three women, of these three women and the, and the Megillah, um, my prayer is that we're gonna we'll, we'll be able to see all of them for the fullness of who they are, and that um, when we are encountering injustice in our world, when we're encountering the realities of our world, 
we'll be able to muster the, the right response that will enable us to achieve a, a better world. Amen. 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 Thank you. Shabbat shalom. Shabbat shalom. Thank you.